0: We would like now to demonstrate how the English language ought to be used by two craftsmen, our guest commentator.
1: Today is Monday, March 4th, 2019. Time for episode 76 of the Barnhart Podcast. I am back from California and I can breathe and I can talk. This Yay. is an improvement.
2: It is. It is. You were not doing too well there for a while.
1: I was so excited to go back to California where I spent uh, four years when I was in the Navy. And of course, in the Midwest, it's you know 20 degrees, 8 degrees, whatever, and snowing. And um, didn't quite pack appropriately if I was going to stay in the area. And I'm thinking, hey, it's going to be warm in California. Get out there. And it was might have been the coldest I've ever experienced it. It was in the 40s. It was raining. It was really windy. And um, I noticed... Uh, that morning. I might have already been coming down with something. Long story short, I came down with a chest cold immediately as soon as I got out there. So uh, that I I got over it while I was out there, lost a day and a half of vacation. But then on the flight back, it was still a bit of a head cold and instant uh, sinus infection. When you're when you have a head cold and you're trying to travel halfway across the country at 40,000 feet, that doesn't really work.
2: Oh dear. Oh I'm sorry to hear that. This is your first this is your first vacation, really, in years and years and years and years and years, you and your wife together alone, yeah?
1: Um you know, the two of us alone is the first time since our honeymoon. Wow. Um, and not wow. counting like a babysitter watching the kids and we go to, you know, Longhorn and have a steak or something like that. Right. Uh, in terms of we go to a different state, and I don't mean the state line right by where I live. I mean like hundreds of miles away. So this this was um, it, it was still a lot of fun, even though I spent a day and a half um, <laughs> sitting at the Airbnb while my wife explored San Diego, which she really liked. And um, the the layout of the uh, of the place where we were staying I had a nice uh, seat on a couch with a south facing window and soaked up lots of sun and had time to put together notes and, and um, some of the stuff we're going to talk about tonight, actually, and um, still got a chance to go out and see some things in San Diego. So even though. Uh, A day and a half of it was sort of lost to trying to overcome not feeling very well and and taking every remedy we can get a hold of at uh whole foods and uh whatever hot toddies couldn't handle uh it was it was still a fun trip and uh something i'm already looking forward to doing again i think we're going to go at a warmer time of the year next time and so that we don't (laughs) hopefully don't run into the same uh problems of uh picking up a, a chest cold or a head cold or something so hopefully i i sound more or less back to normal to the extent that i ever sound normal but um I'm ready to go.
2: Good. I want. There's one thing <laughs> I wanted to ask you about, just because it's so gross. You tried using a neppy pot. What's your verdict on a on a neppy pot for cleansing the old sinuses? A neti pot? The Where you pour the... Didn't you tell me that you used a neppy pot where you pour the water in one nostril and it comes out the other?
1: Yeah. Well, you're pronouncing it with a P, and uh, it's actually with a T. So oh, November neti. E- neti. Okay. Yeah. November yeah. Echo Tango India. Neti pot. Gotcha. And uh, you know, they really work, except if you have massive congestion and an actual sinus infection where there's kind of like a, a snot dam in your sinuses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, in that case, the, the salty artifacts of it get stuck in your sinuses and will irritate you. And um, what I found works in that case is lots of jalapeno chips and uh, Louisiana sauce and hot stuff to make your sinuses flow. And uh, you can get a lot of that out and then irrigate. Um, mm-hmm. you also get some interesting byproducts of that treatment 18 hours later, but in aggregate your sinuses feel a lot better. So yes, net, neti pots definitely do work. Uh, you, you have to be safe with them and use them appropriately, use them correctly, use, you know, use a clean device, uh, use approved salts that makes sense for it. And, um, you know, don't, don't be stupid with it. I mean, if, if you have any questions, talk to a doctor and, um, you should be set straight on that, but no, neti pots actually work.
2: Cool. All right. Good to know. Good to know.
1: In fact, last summer when I was having the ear infection issues, um, using neti pots actually helped me get over it finally. So that that definitely does work.
2: Hmm. Good. Well, it's just a matter of time. I I get them. You no, know, not. I get a good one about every other year—a good, good sinus infection. So, all right, we'll, we'll try it next time. You have to boil the water before you use it, right?
1: Uh, you don't. Well, you can boil it, or you can have you know clean water that you are, know and trust is clean because you're running it through a very nice filtration system. Uh, If you're paranoid or just want to be sure, boil it first. Yeah. But then Mm -hmm. do not put it through your sinuses at boiling. That's going to give you an entirely different kind of problem. It's got to be basically lukewarm. So the, the rule of thumb is you dribble it a couple of drops at a time on the back of your hand. And when it feels lukewarm or it doesn't feel hot, doesn't feel cold, that's probably about the right temperature. But while it's still hot, that's the opportune time to dissolve the salt in it. And it's not your standard table salt, there is neti pot salt. And just go oh, okay. to, just you know, find some silver-haired hippie and say, where's the Whole Foods, or something like that, and, and ask them where the netty pot salts are. And they can guide you to that, no problem.
2: Okay, all right, good to know. Interesting.
1: It definitely works.
2: Uh- all right. So, what are, you've got, you were, you were quite. Uh, lots of messages coming in when you were when you were in San Diego about <laughs> things that were happening and stories you had to tell. So, Gailus with Tales Super Nerd, what do you want to talk about?
1: Oh, let's see. First off, I, I made the comment that we toured infidel style, and I sent you a picture about that. <laughs>
2: Yes, indeed. That was that was quite funny. Why, do, why don't you explain to the, the lads and lasses out there what infidel style means?
1: Even though I lived out there for four years and I drove almost everywhere, because that's what you do in California, this time, uh, even though I was a secondary driver on the uh, rental car, I let my wife drive as much as she wanted to, in part because I didn't figure out how to adjust the steering wheel on the Kia at first, and I was far more comfortable in the passenger seat than the driver's seat, and she just enjoyed driving. So the fact that I kind of knew where things were a little bit, and then I could look it up on, um, on the maps, by the way, Apple maps sucks. Still, if you're someplace where you don't know where you've, where where you're, if you're not familiar with the territory, Google maps, even though they're constantly spying on you and trying to figure out some way to market something to you, that's still the way to go. I re-downloaded a Google apps or Google maps once I got out there and then deleted it when we got to the airport. But, uh, so I served as navigator for the most part. And uh, it, it, I forget where the comment came up that uh, we were looking very anti-Muslim in the way we were uh, touring San Diego. I was like, yeah, my, w- my wife is driving. That's kind of cool. But um, now, talking about infidel connections, too, that was something that, obviously, San Diego is a big military town. So when you talk about connections to 9-11, obviously, the fact that the military has been engaged in the um, near and far east for quite, well, Middle East and uh Afghanistan and in Iraq and some other areas around it since 2001 Obviously, there's the connection there because a lot of the boots on the ground over there came out of San Diego or Orange County And um, so that there's that obvious connection But something else I had forgotten is that uh, two of the 9-11 hijackers were living their cover in San Diego at a place called Sam Starmark gas station not sam's club because there actually is a sam's club close to the location of where sam star mart used to be and mm-hmm. i had in my list of things i wanted to do is if that place still existed i wanted to go there buy a 40 go outside dump it on the ground while shouting at the top of my lungs remember the, the victims of 9-11 mm-hmm. i don't know how well that would have gone um fortunately i was sick that, that day <laughs> and the other problem was i couldn't find it when i googled it and as you know if you can't find it on google it probably doesn't exist. But I think it was around like University Avenue and Spring Street, if you know the the La Mesa area well, but um, it's about like 100 meters from a VFW hall. But anyway, so these two chuckleheads were living their covers until they got the phone call from um, wherever saying, you need to go to Falls Church, Virginia, and and meet up with your other comrades. But uh, yeah, so there's that connection that two of the hijackers were actually living their cover in San Diego before being active. And then, of course, uh, I wanted to visit uh, Fort Rosecrans National uh, Cemetery. That is a military cemetery on Point Loma Hill. Very picturesque. It's got the the, the Pacific on one side uh, as a background and San Diego Bay as a background. And there's a whole collection of Medal of Honor recipients who are, who are buried there. And if you've seen the movie Act of Valor, there is a... A dramatization of the funeral of Mike Mansour who was a Navy SEAL the dramatization is accurate though as he is his casket is going to the the um, cemetery the seals and attendants take their tridents off and pound them onto the, the wood of the coffin so by the oh, time yeah. by the time the coffin reached the uh, gravesite it looked gilded from mm-hmm. all the tridents that are all over it and that that was something that really struck me when I watched that in the cinema and I kind of wanted to stop by there and pay respects, but instead I was convalescing that day also. But my wife did go to the cemetery and of course we prayed for the poor souls and and we have the the Barnhart Benefactor Masses. They weren't going at that time, but I would like to think that uh, the, the Masses for the Dead will also go throughout time and, and um, in some way count for their, our, our uh, countrymen who are over there fighting for the the noble causes that they are so.
2: Well, of course, of course, it applies to everybody. Absolutely, everybody who's died within the previous week gets a gets a proper requiem now. So. <laughs> well, Mike
1: Mansoor died about ten years ago, jumping on a hand grenade. Oh, so. through
2: time, through time, of course, yep, of course, yep. Yep. yep.
1: That was about ten years ago. He jumped on a hand grenade, so his other uh, Navy seals around him wouldn't wouldn't be um, killed, and um, yeah, he paid the ultimate price. He he lived a few hours, so, but uh, he he definitely. <laughs> He definitely. Well, we
2: should check in. In fact, remind me, I should send an email to Father Monday and ask if Father Monday will specifically say a requiem for him. Father Monday checked in not too long ago. For the Father Monday means the priest who says the Barnhart Benefactor Masses on Mondays. And he was deployed, and he's back safe and sound. Thanks be to God. So um, I think maybe an email is going to get sent on that. On that, See if he can say a requiem. And it's good for him to say requiems. So. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. I mean, we absolutely need. And that reminds me, we did get an email uh, in the interim, and I'll, I'll break um, from my notes for this for a minute. Uh, somebody who specifically was thanking for the um, the requiems. Let me find this real quick. Um, dear Anne, or actually, it was, it was it was vectored through me. When you talk to Anne, if you're so inclined, can you mention that I'm very thankful for the weekly requiem that is offered. I know there are many souls with no one to pray for them, but these past few days has been hitting really close to home for me. I'm so deeply disturbed by the deaths of of two men uh that I was so fond of. Uh one was um a, a mentor to her and her husband who are she's um a medical professional, her her uh, husband is as a doctor. And um one was um an unbaptized gay man one was divorced and joked he'd have to work out work till he died to pay off his debts and all the rest um didn't exactly die the best deaths although they were they were praying as hard as possible and had forwarded prayer requests to me and i think i had made a very vague tweet you know please pray for you know a, a special intention that's you know time sensitive and, and uh, so, definitely, some folks were praying, and and I I called on Tiny Princess to please try to help out because uh, the person who sent me this, Erica, she she was one of the people who really helped out early and often with, with Tiny Princess. So hopefully something happened there, and and but also, she was just very thankful that that you have that initiative with the the requiem every single week because you know there there are people who die who they're not necessarily Catholic. We don't know whether or not the grace for conversion at the last minute could reach them and if it does well then what's the other salve or or help to them after they die they they still may have a lot of purgation to go so that that requiem mass really helps
2: yeah yeah well it was it's one of the very 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 least things that we can do and you know the thought occurred to me and it um I was, I was embarrassed that it didn't occur to me sooner, to be honest. So, boy, that's wonderful. Good to hear. Anything we can do?
1: Well, at least you did think of it, and um, it hasn't gone completely forgotten. And I just remembered I meant to speak slower, and I'm just so excited to talk about this. And I'm going like um, a Speedy Gonzalez on crack again. So I'm no, going to try to great. slow down.
0: <laughs> well, at
1: least I can finally talk normally. My voice has been sounding really weird the last few days. So, yeah
2: we kept we, we kept scheduling we meant to ke- keep trying to do a, a recording and I would just I would get the the message like not tonight uh, bump let's try a few days from now so just happy happy that you're back back in fighting form
1: I apologize to the to the person who had a big road trip today and uh, was hoping for a podcast I'm sorry but uh, it's it's completely my fault I got sick and we schedule or we, we scrubbed two recording schedules last week, and um, hey, at least it's working now. Uh, one of the big things that, that I was I was really looking forward to was uh, touring a Navy ship while I was in San Diego.
0: Mm, it's uh-huh. been
1: quite a while since I've been out there and found out that uh, my wife's roommate from college is in the Navy and was able to give me a ship on, or give me a tour, I should say, on an Independence Class LCS. And these are very interesting ships. So I mentioned the connection of the the several different levels of connection of, of san diego to the events of 9-11 well one of the one of the things that followed on from 9-11 is congress couldn't write big enough checks to the department of defense to fund all of the war on terror and one of the things that happened at one of the hallways in the five-sided puzzle palace well better known as the pentagon somebody stopped by somebody some admiral's office and say hey you want to buy a couple a new class of warships, right? <laughs> and they said um yeah i guess so the Perry class frigates were the smallest boats um main battle or the main uh, combat boats that the the navy has had since probably about the 70s and those have been slowly getting phased out they were being decommissioned when i got out of the navy in fact the ship i was on last when i got out of the navy in the late 90s that now is in the turkish navy Mm. no big loss there it's not the most capable boat in the world but uh we had been lacking those those small boat uh frigate corvette type boats and um so with this sudden mountain of money and saying do you want to buy something or should we should we take this budget someplace else maybe the rangers want to buy something they said no no no. We'll we'll buy something so quickly they put out the requisition for some a boat that could operate in littoral waters which is like 25 to miles into the shore So I, I freely use the term littoral combat ship and, and littoral I understand that it's close to shore you, you can visually see the shore which also means the people on shore can see you and shoot at you But mm-hmm. That's a different issue uh, Typically if a boat's gonna be operating that close to shore, there's probably air coverings, or you're being very stealthy. Uh, you're not Typically worried about being shot at but anyway You're gonna be doing some interesting missions um
2: but I've just I've just pulled up Independence class LCS uh page on wiki and I'm looking at this beautiful picture of this boat that they've got there and it's got the um it seems to have the radar reflecting shape to it is that is that accurate
1: Um it sure looks like it yeah Yeah and, and so. Uh, so so the the guy who gave me the tour on this boat, I, I asked him when I, as soon as I, because I've seen it, I'd done some study on Wikipedia and uh, seven other websites before I got there. And I had a big list of questions I wanted to ask, half of which is like, I don't know. Um, (laughs) and, and that's, I mean, I'm not, it's not a dig on him. I mean, he he has this particular job on the ship and he doesn't know everything there is to know. He hasn't spent hours researching things. So, you know, my, my ranging from questions about sensors to navigation package, to weapon systems, to, uh, engineering, that's like seven different people you should talk to on the boat to get an overall view. And if I'm asking 20 questions, probably 18 or probably 12 of them i was like yeah i can't answer that question but um that's okay i can ask they just don't necessarily have to answer but uh, it it is roughly shaped in a way that is supposed to be radar reflecting and i did ask him i was like did the shape of the uh, the sea shadow project factor into this whatsoever and he looked at me and said what's the sea shadow (laughs) which (laughs) uh, if you're older you might recognize that that was a project back in the mid-90s in fact i saw that one a couple of times off the coast of, of, of san diego that was a spooky looking ship it was a like a triangle shaped ship and it, it the um imagine a hollow triangle and the the lower part of it's all underwater it's got a, a ballasting system and some and some motors on underneath and then the the top of the triangle is somewhat filled in that's where the crew section is and this thing was completely invisible to radar but they would hoist some some reflectors so people you know close to shore wouldn't run into them um which well, could, could it, be a problem
2: wouldn't you call that a pontoon? It kind of it looks so Star Trek if you pull the pull a picture of it up. But wouldn't you call that a pontoon configuration?
1: The Sea Shadow. Yeah. Pretty much. I mean, except that underneath, it's it's not really pontoon. I, I want to say there really was a connection between the bottom parts. Uh, the whole point was to see how to run through the water super quiet, which is why there was basically nothing in the water other than those two parts getting down and mm-hmm. in the shape of it was to reflect all radar so could you be so quiet that that sonar couldn't pick you up and can you be so radar reflective that radar wouldn't pick you up and if that if that could be pulled off imagine getting in a couple of miles from shore and dropping off um i don't know 30 or so commandos with bad intentions and, and lots of ammunition and then that, th- that thing scooting back out to sea and nobody ever saw it come or go or heard it or anything and um mm-hmm. your first clue that in was there was that a whole bunch of stuff goes up in fireballs but by that time the commandos are already back out to sea and the sea shadow is scooting them out to sea and there's nothing you can do about that at that point. Mhm. Mm-hmm. We it's, have we have submarines for delivering those guys. So I mean that that's, Yeah, that's
2: just what I was going to say. It's it's the non-submarine version of the submarine. Yeah.
1: It it was definitely a an experimental warship or a design I should say. It was never a warship. It was just an experimental craft to Uh, do a proof of concept for a whole bunch of different stuff. And they never talked about any of it, really. Um, obviously there are some folks in research and design who learned lessons that needed to be learned and applied them to something, I think. But the LCS has somewhat of a shape like that. It's got that angular shape. Mm Mm-hmm but then there are other things that are very non-angular it's like okay i can see where 80 percent of the design is kind of like radar defeating but then you've got that thing there which is like straight up and down relative to you know perpendicular from the water that's going to reflect radar pretty well and you're like yeah well <laughs> what do you expect uh yeah. so it's the the independence class it's a trimaran hall so there it's imagine a catamaran with another big section in the middle and mm-hmm. uh, it was adapted from a commercial ferry. So the number one attribute of this boat is that it can go fast. Uh, the commercial ferry goes about 40 knots, which is about uh, 46 miles an hour. So this thing, uh, the, my guide said it will do 45, 46 knots, which is almost 55 miles an hour. And I said, wow. is, that, is that official or, or or unclassified or is that really what it does? And he, and he looked at me and said, did they really make that distinction when, when you were in the Navy? He's like, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because the, the mm-hmm. Nimitz class carriers, if you look them up still, they say 33 plus. Uh, the ships I, were <laughs> o- I was on, they said 33 plus. Um, how fast they really go, you kind of have to be there and at the helm and watching GPS to figure out how fast it really goes. Um, it may or may not have been limited to 33. I'm not going to mention. but. Mm. Um, they could they could move if they wanted to. Uh-huh. Of course, they're powered by uh, gas turbine engines, which you know can suck up fuel so fast. There's no point trying to do high speed runs. But the the propulsion system on these, unlike normal ships, they have screws, um, propellers on on shafts, just typical uh-huh. screws. They have uh-huh. water jets, so it it it's func- in functioning. It's a lot more like a jet ski. And it can turn and maneuver like a jet ski as well. So, in combination with having a bow thruster and the what do you say, in total eight water propulsors on the back, they can basically move sideways across uh, out from the pier and and uh, don't need a tugboat to get underway or come back from from uh, from being at sea, assuming wow. everything works. And I'll get back to that in a minute. But it's kind of you know, like
2: the hair the Harrier setup for for boats. Sure, cool.
1: sure. It's. It's very lightweight. The whole thing is made of aluminum, which is, you know, kind of, I raised a couple of eyebrows at that one. It's like, well, doesn't that, isn't that a corrosion problem? Because I did read that the independence class had serious corrosion issues and they had to stop uh, construction of the second hull that was being built while they try to figure out on the independence, how do you stop the corrosion on this? Because aluminum and salt water and that you you get some biometallic effects because it's not just aluminum in the water. Even though the the, the hull is made from aluminum, there's some other uh, metals involved as well. So mm-hmm. they, they had to figure out how do, you, they, how do you do a remix on this? Where do you put the sacrificial anodes uh, around the boat? Where do you position them so that uh, corrosion is, is um, retarded? You can never really stop it, but you can slow it down. And um, they figured something out that seems to work, and they retrofitted that onto the second one. And by the time they built the third one, they more or less had a plan that seemed to work, so they went forward with it there. Okay, so I didn't mention something else here that's really stupid about the LCS. Um the, the The Navy was said, "You want to buy a class of ships, right? Here's a bunch of money. Go ahead and do it. So they put out a contract to say between uh, General Dynamics and Austral, uh, which is actually Australia, but they they um, they have a US counterpart. Austral is the one who built the trimaran based on their commercial ferry, and General Dynamics built something that looks like a normal boat. it's single hull. And, and um, it's still small. And the idea was these two, they'd, they'd build one of each and have a competition and decide among both. But the geniuses in the Pentagon said, yeah, we like them both. Let's buy them both. Okay. Huh. Every brand new class of ship is going to have problems. And the first one of the line is always a problem child because you don't know what you don't know until you put it in the water and actually take it and shake it down and see what, what happens. And... If you're only dealing with one class at a time here, and you have a known budget for making corrections and and, uh, revising your blueprints and then applying them to later boats in the class, no big deal. If they would have just chosen one and gone with it, then that entire budget for figuring out what needs to be corrected and making the corrections and going forward could have been applied to just that. But instead, they divided the budget, the effort, the research, all the rest, so you get these two imperfect boats. I mean, it was going to be imperfect either way, but if you just make a choice and go with it, it's the devil you know and you can work around it. But they didn't sure. go that direction. They decided, let's just do both, which just screws the pooch in like seven different directions. So the the other class of ship, I forget which one it is, there's uh, three or four hulls of that one out in San Diego. And mm-hmm. my guide said, they're always pure side. They never get underway because they can never get underway because they. Constantly have critical, um, either it's engineering problems or they're under redline or something. So there's wow. this, this new term I learned uh, under redline. It, it's I've heard it in, in business terms called critical path. If you, for example, if you don't have both of your main engines able to start up and provide power, then you are under redline. If you're if you're under redline, you can't get you can't go under and get underway to go to sea. Mm-hmm. It, it's the minimum requirements to actually go to sea and do something. And by the isn't way, that,
2: isn't that allegorical? Isn't that so allegorical for our our world and our situation and our government? You've got all this money, all this technological ability, and it's just, you just can't get underway. But go ahead, go ahead, continue.
1: And of course, these boats have never been in combat, and they probably won't be in combat anytime soon because where exactly are they going to go? Um,. I'm, China. I'm, kinda, I'm well. I mean, I'm kind of jumping around here. I mean, they're not going to do open ocean. They have no offensive weapon capabilities. They have some defensive weapon weapons, but even not that great at that. Uh-huh. And yeah. even even the ideas that they they try to to build into this, one of the core problems, um, I, I think the biggest problem with the LCSs, both both hull types, is the question of what's the mission, and if you look. At the navy, for example, destroyers were always primarily anti-submarine and anti-shipping, or, or anti-surface. I mean, that's two different missions, but it's easy. To, it's easy to do both. It's two missions. Mm-hmm. Uh, Frigates, same thing. They were they were anti-surface, anti anti-submarine, and limited anti-aircraft capability. With that, the AW thing was a very limited secondary thing. The first boat I was on was an Aegis cruiser, primarily uh, anti-aircraft, had super sophisticated three D air search radar it could do surface and anti-surface as well but you know their real their real um, their real role in the battle group was to shoot down anything in the air and and so you, you kind of have strengths based around a particular mission you know battleships you you lob half ton 16 inch shells at stuff up to 20 miles away so do you have a basic mission you want to fill and then you build a ship to fill it in the case of the LCS, they didn't really know what the mission was going to be. And so some genius said, I know. Let's come up with a concept of multi-mission modules. So they have Connex boxes. These are like uh, containers that you might see on the back of a semi rolling down the freeway. Mm-hmm. And... Um, uh, I forget what the exact dimensions are that make a Conex. I want to say it's like a 28-foot uh, container. So it's not the full 48-footer that you see it on a normal 18-wheeler, but it's a, the short version of these. So you you have a collection of two or three of these would make a mission module. So it might, if you're doing anti-submarine warfare, it might be that one of the module, one one of the Conex boxes has, you know. Uh, all computers and sensors and, and one of the other modules has a uh, towed array that you can then put out the back of the ship to then connect into the um, the computerized version I don't know I don't know what ca- I don't know what comes into the third one but the idea being that you, you have these boxes that that can com- that uh, compose a, a, a mission module and the whole point of multi-mission module is you might have multiple mission module sets as the name kind of implies on the boat at any given time and the independence class can easily handle two if not three mms sets of these multi-mission module sets because it has got a huge huge storage area under its flight deck that's one thing i've never seen on a on a cruiser destroyer type boat is just the massive amount of, of of storage space they've got in there i mean that 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 rivals some of the some of the smaller amphibious ships, just the, the huge garage space they've got there. And that's not even the hangar deck for the helicopters. They've got that upstairs and that, that had a lot of room. So they got a lot of room in there. And so they just use it for jogging or workout machines or something because the navy decided you know even though the the multi-mission system was what, what made sense because they weren't really sure how they were going to use it now that the ships are built it's like nah, we're not going to do the multi-module thing anymore so that the only the only um roles are anti-submarine warfare anti-mine warfare and i don't know something else and on the independence class if you go up to the front of the boat and take a tour there's a box-shaped cutout that's covered And I said, wait, let me guess, because I see the signs around that say, watch out for missile blast. And I know this thing doesn't actually carry missiles. They were thinking this thing is going to carry tomahawks at some point. This we're standing over a void that is supposed to carry 40 Mark 41 VLS launchers for missiles. And the guy goes, yep. (laughs) So when do you get them? Never.
2: (laughs) Never. Yeah. So I'm looking at a picture just the picture that came up at the very top of the wiki page and um, is is what you're talking about right now is that that square thing that's that's behind the gun is that what is that what I'm looking at yeah it would yeah. be
1: behind the gun yes
2: yes okay I see it We'll post links to this. In fact, we might even post this picture in the in the blog post itself. Since
1: you, you might have to send me some of the links you're looking at because I, I've I've seen a bunch and and I it, they just don't seem interesting to me anymore. So I don't know what, yeah. what you find interesting. It in this case it makes a lot more sense for you to send me links because I'm I'm none of it seems interesting to me at this point. And that okay. was that was one of the things that uh, I took two pictures the entire time I was on the ship, and it was of the anchor windlass room. So. On a ship, you have an anchor. Um, oh, you just sent me a link. Yes. Um, oh, that that noise should have should show up on the podcast. Cool.
2: I did. I didn't hear it. For what it's worth, I didn't hear I, it. I did. Anyway,
1: okay. So, um, on an on a normal ship, you have an anchor, which is off the side, so you can drop it or out front or, or close to the front. But connected to the anchor are is the anchor chain. Mm-hmm. And the anchor chain is what holds the ship still when when you're at anchor, and you'll have. I don't know, 30, 40, 50 fathoms of, of chain. Each link weighs about 25 pounds. I mean, this is some serious metal
0: mm-hmm. on, on
1: these anchor chains. And uh, they the anchor chain itself literally weighs tons. Uh, that That is what actually keeps the, the ship still when you're swinging on the anchor. Okay. This thing has maybe a fathom or two. And if you're not familiar with fathoms, it's about two meters or six feet is a fathom. Okay. Okay. And uh, they've got three or four fathoms, maybe. I did a look at the picture again. I think it's even less than that. And then it's got steel cable, or steel rope. They actually call it steel. What, what civilians would call steel cables, the Navy calls steel rope. Would call ropes. Mm-hmm. And and uh, what we would call ropes, they call lines. Anyway, steel fibrous thing connected to the um, to the anchor chain, a very short anchor chain. But in this case, the chain is what would hold the ship. Uh, again, still would hold the ship steady. So on a normal boat if you find you that you're dragging anchor maybe uh there's there's more drift more more um uh flow of the water through the estuary where you are or maybe it's high winds and it provides enough force that the anchor isn't and the anchor chain isn't holding you well the solution to that is you just let out more anchor chain and so you have more dead weight below you to keep you steady mm-hmm. on an lcs you don't do that you just sort of get dragged around <laughs> so
2: as one does yes <laughs> And what is the logic behind that? Dare, dare I even ask? Or am uh, I just being silly at this point? I
1: don't point? know. I don't know. Wow. I really, I really don't know. It, it's, it's. It, it, I, I took a picture of it because it was struck me as so odd to see that on, as, as what was holding onto the anchor, that that was the one thing that actually struck me as wanting to take a picture. I take that back. That was the one thing I could take a picture of that I was allowed to take a picture of. Um, that that I did. Uh, the tour of the bridge was was. i It would have been nice to be able to take pictures, but uh I, I was warned: take all your electronics and set them on this table. And there's like a big blatant sign: all electronics go here. Um, and, and then uh, my my tour guide had to go check that the bridge was sanitized, that uh, a, a civilian could go in there, and there wasn't something top secret. And I was like, yeah, whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I I've done that game too, so. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's not truly a game. You just have to be smart about who you're letting in there and what they can see. Because you don't know if they're going to go on a podcast and tell the world what their technical frequencies were or something like that.
2: Exactly. Yep. (laughs) They got to do their job. So you went on the bridge and anything cool or remarkable?
1: So I was a quartermaster in the Navy, which is a navigator. And my job revolved around plotting on paper charts where in the world you are not so useful at port you're kind of the same place you were when you tied up you know four Uh weeks ago but when you're at sea the reference of where you are was always done visually on a paper chart it's like sir we were right here last time we did a fix we're going that direction we expect to be right here next time we take a fix Uh taking a fix is you know looking at the gps or doing um, a measurement either visually or by radar to figure out based on land points where you are Uh and um before I could even ask the question, uh, he, my, my tour guide said, "We do have paper charts, but we don't use them." So the entire navigation system—not surprising. This is the one thing I wanted to learn about: is you know what 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 uh, advances have they made in twenty years?
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: uh, they everything is digital. I said, "But you still keep a paper chart and just nominally drop a point on there, just in case the whole thing drops, right?" No, we don't.
0: No, so yeah.
1: Not only that, but the the uh, the bridge team there's. When I was when I was at sea we had the officer of the deck, junior officer of the deck, conning officer, so three officers, and then myself the quartermaster of the watch, we had the busman of the watch, we had the the conning or the the, the helmsman. And I wanna say we had one other enlisted dude on, on the ship or on the bridge. On the cruiser we had an operating or an, an OS who was watching the, the radars. So we had eight people on the bridge and usually other lurkers and hangers out who are people trying to qualify. If the captain felt like it or the XO felt like it, they had designated chairs on the bridge. So there was always a bunch of people up there. On the LCS, there's two watchstanders, both officers. And, okay, nothing wrong with that, except that all of the ship's management system are are through these computers, which I was told are constantly giving false alarms. So Ah. watch out for this, watch out for that. It's like half of the time they're looking inside the pilot house looking at their data systems and and silencing alarms and not necessarily looking out at the real world
2: that's allegorical too isn't it my goodness
1: we had a couple of podcasts last year talking about uh, the Fitzgerald and the Mm -hmm. um, the McCain Mm -hmm. and they have more okay I was told that and and my tour guide had served on, on, um, on an Arleigh Burke destroyer the McCain and the Fitzgerald are Arleigh Burke destroyers and the bridge watch on those is closer to what i remember. Uh so there there's definitely more people on the bridge whether or not they're qualified is a completely different question. Mm-hmm. But the 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 what i was told is the people doing the bridge watch on the, the LCS it is overload because you, you, you're constantly there's only two people to do what seven people did previously. And then there is half of the time it seems like you're just trying to silence the stupid computerized system. I'm like wow. Okay, that's... nobody's updating this. And, and, and um, I had this interesting little tangent about, um, the, about the charting system too. So as I was getting out of the Navy, they were in the process of digitizing all the, 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 the charts and everything. And initially mm-hmm. what they were doing is what they're taking just photo scans of charts and making what they called raster charts. It's just an image. And then it's like if you take a photo of somebody and zoom in and out, that's a mm-hmm. raster image. You're, you're not, you're just taking the same image and scaling it up and down. Mm-hmm. As opposed to... Let's say you, you, you took a mathematical equation to define the shape of the coastline around California, and then the geographic points of, say, where buoys are and where underwater formations are, and it's all mathematically defined so that as you scale in and out, you don't lose detail or gain mm-hmm. detail. It's just recomputed based on the scale. It's called a vector chart. And what I was told is that that the guy who had worked with these the, the digital charts absolutely hated the vector charts. And and if it was up to him, they would just use all raster. And I said, "Have you ever used Google Maps?" And they said, "Yeah." It's like, isn't that kind of a good experience? Like, yeah, that, that'd be great. And it's like that's vector. <laughs> They're just doing it right. Yeah. And, and it's, I, I I can't really make fun of uh, the situation of the of the charge because it it's some military contractor put this together. Or, Probably with 20-year-old technology, and they can't just update this the same speed at which Google updates Google Maps. I mean, they probably have updated Google Maps twice while we've been recording so far. They're constantly making updates to this thing. Uh-huh. And whereas the, the navigation systems for these boats, they built them before the LCS ever you know was, was fully designed, which would have been in the early 2000s. Probably haven't been updated since. And it looks wow. like it.
2: Wow. So let me put this question to you: If, um, let's say, f- for the sake of argument, we get involved in some sort of a, some sort of an engagement with China over there, just as an example, um, from what you've said, if if an enemy were to somehow figure out a way to disable the electronics on one of or a group of these boats. from what you said, it sounds to me like they would just be dead in the water. They would have no, no means of navigation. There's no paper charts on anything. And I would also have to assume given that, that the personnel have absolutely no idea how to do, you know, non-technological reckoning of position using obviously the sun, the celestial, uh, celestial um, reckoning like that. Would, would that be accurate?
1: On the LCS, there are two people who know how to do all that there are two
2: people who do know how to do they can take a sextant and and do those sorts of things. Yep,
1: and I the, the new sextants look exactly like the old ones because that technology sure. is pretty much the same since Galileo worked on it, so.
2: Mhm. Mhm. Wow. Well, I you know, I'm I'm impressed that there are two people on board a boat that can do that. That's I I was assuming that you were going to say something else, but but, yeah, there you go. I Isn't that allegorical? I suspected
1: you were, but you know, the, I mentioned the term um, red line. Part of this is there There has to be somebody, you know, so when I was in the Navy, I, I, sub, I was a quartermaster, second class. The, the junior, the most junior quartermaster that can be on an LCS is a first class, and typically they have a chief. And the idea is this is somebody who has had 15 years of experience on other boats throughout the Navy, and they would have been qualified on everything there is to qualify as a quartermaster, doing visual aids, doing doing uh, paper charts, doing everything by hand. So mm-hmm. by the time you come to the, one of these technological wonders, if if everything were to break, then you know how to not break a sweat and, and just start piloting the way you know how to do it anyway. So in that sense, it make, it's not completely irrational. But the other thing is, if it comes to a shooting war against the Chinese, the LCS is not going to be involved. It's Uh a, at most, at most, it could be involved for anti-submarine warfare, and I don't know how how good of of a job that would do. The the multi-mission module suggests that whatever the most advanced, top-secret DARPA project is that could, you know, sniff a submarine out of the water, they might be able to fly one of those out, crane it on or helicopter it on and and deploy it, and it might do a really good job, in which Uh case it may not be a complete waste of money. It's. It, I always liked the Perry class frigates, not because they were great war fighters. They certainly weren't. But when it came to American policy, what these small boats do is you go somewhere in the world and you stick the American flag out somebody's nose and say we're here and there's nothing you can do about it. And we can deploy our navy wherever we feel like it. Uh uh-huh. We just show the flag. That's what they do. And if you take a shot at us with anything so much as a, a 22 long rifle, we're gonna shoot back with something a lot bigger. Yeah. And, and for some of these platforms, if, if they, you know, like the Perry class frigate, it, it wasn't so much that it could deliver a lot of firepower itself, but it could take a picture electronically of the surface area or the, or the air search around it. And if it saw a threat, it may be the last thing it ever did, but it would phone it home on the satellite and saying, this is what's coming in at us. This is the radar profile. This is the, the, um, the, the electronic profile of the homing radar on the on the aircraft coming in on us, we can identify this as a MiG twenty three. Ecuador's got these based on where we are, we think it's them. Mm-hmm. That may be the last thing we ever see, but Ecuador's gonna get a you know wake up call of about sixty seven Tomahawk missiles in the next morning. Mm-hmm. So is it really worth it? Just because you can blow up one of these things, it's not necessarily a good idea. Right. Now when it comes to a shooting war, could they possibly play a role? Yes probably mine clearing or or mine warfare or anti-submarine warfare but they're not really going to be offensive combatants unless they get those vertical launch missiles i mean they could but even then you're going to have maybe 20 missiles whereas uh the Arleigh burks have i think 140 of those things
0: mm-hmm.
1: and ideally i think um they, they've been talking about having they've been talking about this for years doing uh, something called an arsenal ship where they have like 500 tomahawks on, on one of these things and why not? and why not because the whole the whole point now, the the advance in military technology, we no longer need battleships. The whole point of a battleship was to put a round on a particular point, whether it was on shore or on a ship. Uh-huh. And the ability to launch these super heavy shells uh, through 12 to 16 guns and do it every 15 seconds is because we didn't have radar guided munitions. They might uh-huh. have to shoot 100 shells to reliably hit an enemy ship. We can shoot one, not Seahawk, what is it? rgm 88 why can't i think of the normal name for it um it's an anti-ship missile that has about an 88 mile range we can shoot one of those and it's pretty much a a confirmed kill or one tomahawk will reach out to 500 miles in in anti-ship mode and it's pretty much a confirmed kill give us a location on land of where you want a target blown up we can shoot one tomahawk and it's a confirmed kill or if you, ha- if you have um, something like a Firehawk uh, helicopter on board or an attack helicopter, load that thing up with Hellfire missiles or Maverick missiles, send that over the horizon, one shot, one kill. We have very precise weapons right now.
2: Mhm. I just pulled up RGM-88 and it says Jetta. Is that what you were thinking of?
1: No, it's the anti-ship missile. I, I I'm confusing myself. The 88 was the range. RGM-84, I think, might have been it. So Let's see. Right. You're, I'm, I'm going to kick myself as soon as you say the name because i harpoon, harpoon harpoon yes i used to stand surface watch literally leaning on those things on on the um on cg-50 so anyway cool. yeah the, those those are not new missiles but they they work and, mm-hmm. and they're, they're very precise and we have new versions of those theoretically in the pipeline that could travel at like mach 5 but they're highly precise, so at this point we have no need of battleships because of what the battleship gave us we can do with missiles now. Yes, they're expensive, mm-hmm. but one shot, one kill. What more do you want? Um, I'm beginning to question whether or not we even need aircraft carriers anymore. The big advantage, the revolution of the aircraft carrier is, in World War II, you launch your planes from 100, 200 miles out from the uh, from the enemy's battle group, and by the time they realize there's anybody within 500 miles your bombers are over them sinking their boats. Uh-huh. Well, now you send out a drone at 80,000 feet over the horizon and, and uh, that thing can see for six, 700 miles around on, on, the, on the ocean floor. You can see ships out there start sending in cruise missiles. You don't need carriers uh-huh. anymore for the most part to do these kinds of precise attacks either. Better yet, uh, once you know where the ships are, Send send a Vlf signal and let, let the submarines go go um, pluck them out of the water. These uh-huh. things are really good at uh, approaching slowly and, and um, letting the letting the, the skimmers never the, the surface ships never know what hit them. So I mean there's the, the technology really is turning the whole battlefield upside down and makes you wonder why do we need aircraft carriers? why do we need battleships or the we don't need them anymore? All we really need is is uh, sensors and missiles pretty much. I mean, yes, there are some other things we need. Um, just something that's painted gray, re- re- flies the stars and stripes, and can show up in port and say, we are a U.S. Navy warship. And mm-hmm. it's, just, it's, a, it's a diplomacy machine. So between sensors, missiles, and diplomacy, I'm not sure what else we need.
2: Can you talk for a minute about this whole notion? And I'm sure this is occurring to the listeners as you're saying this the same way it's occurring to me. Uh, can you talk about the notion that yeah, this whole naval naval situation, the pe- the pendulum has swung so far now at this point that the they're back to the point where they're vulnerable, as we have seen more than once, to a group of you know suicide guys in a teeny tiny little trashy speedboat, just you know sneaking up alongside one of these things and and. Detonating some good-sized but not terribly technologically sophisticated munition right next to the hull of of one of these boats. Do you think that it's just swung all the way as far as it's going to get, and now, in a certain sense, that that naval combat and naval warfare is going to go back to the, the the extraordinarily primitive? Type type of things. I mean, doing things like ramming. You know, I mean, there have been there have been ramming incidents too. Can you do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Well, there's a few things to that. I mean, I'm trying to remember the name of the ship that uh, over in the Gulf of Aden. This was before, uh, way before 9/11, where uh, we were not really on a war footing. And uh, one of these early Burke cruisers pulled, well, destroyers pulled in, and somebody just in um, one, one of these Haji's uh, in a. In a Little mm-hmm. fishing vessel and eighteen hundred pounds of uh, TNT pulled up alongside and hit the the suicide switch, mm-hmm. darn near sunk the thing. Mm-hmm. Our, our mission profile in terms of how how do we react to somebody like that did not anticipate that happening. So you you can't react to the threat you don't see. And mm-hmm. In terms of getting rammed, um, I don't know that we've been rammed on purpose. I mean the mccain and, and the fitzgerald that was more just incompetence on the bridge and setting up a situation where they were they were where they shouldn't be and they didn't even know what they were doing but yeah. uh, in terms of somebody with bad intentions ramming us um given the state of people who run bridge watches it could be a concern but i made the comment on on our previous podcast where we talked about the fitzgerald these ships are extremely agile if they see somebody with bad intentions like a a um 20,000 ton bulk cruiser or a bulk mm-hmm. freighter trying mm-hmm. to ram you, these ships are so agile, they could turn and just run circles around this thing if they see mm-hmm. it coming. It's really not that hard. And, and, and the, the propulsion systems on these things, even if they're cruising along on one engine, it takes 45 seconds to have the other three lit off and have it full flank power um, mm-hmm. to go. I mean, that's, yeah, the, the the engines that they use on these things suck up a lot of fuel, but that's the trade-off they they can go from zero to full power in under a minute sure um i don't know the uss
2: Cole is the one that you were referencing Absolutely. and it was it was less than a year before nine eleven, and i remember the number 17 there were 17 killed in that
1: there were yeah there were definitely fatalities there and um it, it definitely changed the mission posture uh, I, I i seem to recall reading that the uh the folks who were standing watch security watch uh had unloaded Pistols and rifles, because of anything else is <laughs> actually inviting inviting uh, problems. Uh, mm-hmm. Sailors, I, I, I've heard from a, a marine in the past, the most dangerous thing in the world is a sailor with a gun. Um,
0: <laughs> probably not.
1: Tr- probably not false. Um, once they started getting serious about uh, about security, they would embark certain people like either seals or people who actually trained to shoot guns. Mm -hmm. they would come out and meet them and and stand the the armed watches around there and anytime somebody got too close they'd either fire a a, uh, fire hose at them or put a couple of warning rounds in the water next to them and that would either uh, change their their intentions or I don't know I don't think they ever had a shoot at anyone
2: well let me think this through though what if you've got Suicide Haji and he's got you know a putt-putt motorboat filled with TNT and it's on a fuse it doesn't matter if you if you know if you fire at him and turn him into hamburger how would how would you defend against that if there's putt putt boat filled filled with TNT Haji is dead you've greased him but there but the but his little putt putt boat is now sitting right next to your hull By the And time- you, and you and you're at port and you're at port what in the heck can you
1: do at that point There's going to be a perimeter where you were, you would engage before they get close enough and part mm-hmm. of the engagement would be you're not shooting the driver you're shooting the boat and, oh, okay and um probably like a 25 millimeter round or a 50 mil- 50 caliber and yeah. those may be tracer rounds I mean, it, the whole point is if, if if it's got explosives in there you're going to try and set that off before it's so close it could it could uh, do mm-hmm. serious damage or you're going to sink the darn thing you, they've had their warning shots at this point if they're still heading towards you they're getting splashed mm-hmm
0: mm-hmm
2: well if people are prepared for that and you know the 19 20 year old kids that's another thing that scares me about it is you know who's got that responsibility and we've talked a lot you know obviously we talk about the culture all the time and we've talked about this millennial culture and you know we look at the the 19 20 21 year olds that are walking the streets, so to speak today and um you know certainly, I believe that a stint in the military does does a young person a heck of a lot of good, but if they're coming in and they're you know they have the practical mind and practical fun- functionality of a seven year old a century ago, which a a lot of them that's I think that's a pretty fair kind of a kind of a comparison um it it makes one wonder and it it isn't it isn't the most consoling thought in the world.
1: I see where you're going with that, but there are also plenty of people who grew up in um, not-so-coddled environments, and they, they make fantastic soldiers as well. Uh-huh, and uh-huh. Uh, given the technological nature of the military these days, people growing up on video games, in some cases, I really hate to say this, that may be a pretty decent training for what these ships and, and combat systems are. You know how how you actually interface with them. It oh yeah, I don't think anybody of,
2: will fault you for saying that. That's a that's a completely valid point. Did yeah. you
1: ever watch the movie? I want to say it came out in the '80s. I think it was called The Last Starfighter. It was based on. Um, you know, the the movie starts at some kid who's playing an arcade game back when they still had arcades that you pumped quarters into, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it was a it was a fancy version of an arcade game where you had the whole you you sit down and you got the the foot pedals and the the controls and all the rest. And it, it it was a starfighter type thing, so you're battling people out out in outer space. And this kid sets like all the top scores, literally in the world, on this one. And um, early on in the movie, you have an alien ship come in, and come to find out, those games were exact mock-ups of of the <laughs> of, of the pilot of of the the cockpits for real starfighters on the other side of the galaxy. And they're looking for, for people with the aptitude to run them. And so that was their recruiting thing. I don't know that the military is reaching out to Sony and, and Microsoft to build games that uh, actually simulate what it's like to fly an F-35 without a pilot in it, but mm-hmm. they might be. I don't know.
2: Interesting. I just pulled it up and <laughs> I want to watch this movie now. 1984, it's got a 77% on Rotten Tomatoes, so it's probably not It's probably not the worst movie in the world. Interesting. We'll have to watch that. We'll put a link in the show notes.
1: It's been forever since I've seen it. Um, I'm surprised I remember the name. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Well, it looks kind of um eighty four, so that's right heck in eighty four they were still showing Return of the Jedi in um in theaters. So it's definitely got that you can see the space battle scenes look very very Star Warsy, so
1: yeah, yeah I have to check state, that out. The state of the CGI I wanna say eighty four was also when the first Terminator came out too, so they, they didn't have the kind of realistic green screen type stuff they have now. They yeah. they did everything with practical effects. Actual as models, close they could too. yeah. Yep.
2: Yeah, yep. All right. Well, see everybody, we're we're here to help. You're asking what what movies can we watch and what's safe. And that's, that's pretty safe. That can't be rated. Oh, it's PG. Yeah, it's PG. So I well, think that's. Well, at
1: that point in time, did the PG, did those include nudity though? Because there was some time before PG-13 came out that PG oh, included right. stuff that was. I'll tell you what, go to IMDb. And this is like a, a great tip in general. If you want to know whether or not a movie is uh, morally objectionable, go to IMDB and look at the rating guidelines and they will tell you for, you know, sexuality or, or, or nudity, whether or not any of that's in there. It, it'll tell you exactly why the movie gets the rating. It does. And it does it for the mm-hmm. United States, Australia, and all the five eyes countries. Um, Afghanistan, they don't show movies, so that doesn't apply. But, um, I said five eyes. I meant, um, uh, the English speaking, it's the same thing. Uh, U, UK, uh, Canada United States New Zealand and Australia mm-hmm. the the English speaking countries and there there is a technology sharing not technology intelligence sharing uh, cooperation called the Five Eyes agreement so US can't spy on Americans so we have the Brits do it or the Canadians or the Australians uh, so we have eyes we have eyes on each other
2: uh, that's why all that all that Facebook stuff was all incorporated basically in London of course that makes sense yeah
1: no possibly i, I don't know all the reasons for that but there's probably a tax dodge in there too, but
2: Uh, that too. Yes.
1: (laughs) I had some other, I had some other random points that, um, I wanted to mention out fun, fun things that I I wouldn't have thought of uh, before going on vacation. So one of the places my wife and I went was Coronado Beach. We went to the we, we did a, a brief tour of the Hotel Del Coronado, which I had seen hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times when I was in the Navy because that was one of the one of the locations where we we took visual bearings coming in, in and out of the, the harbor. But I'd never actually been in it. It's something where I think 17 presidents have stayed there, and, and it costs like a thousand dollars a night to stay there. And I think they charge you 20 bucks just to walk through and look. At the, well, no, they didn't. I, I got through there for free. But it's it's a very swanky place, and um, that was kind of cool. But but all of Coronado Island, I, it just it's it's extremely small houses, and <laughs> we were wondering. I wonder how much these these houses cost. And I remember there's an app called uh, Zillow that you can download and, mm-hmm. and look to see what house prices are. So we're walking along whatever the street there is right by Coronado Beach. And so I pull up the, the Zillow app and I, I zoom into right where we're at as we're walking. It's like, okay, that one bedroom house is $4 million, That two and a half bedroom <sighs> is $8 million. Um, that one's 14. That one with the paint peeling is 25 million because it's three times the size of everything else. It was actually entertaining just to look at this and say how much you think that one is It's like no nope, 25 million. How much you think that one is four million yeah four million that's about right based on everything in the neighborhood and, and that's one of the weird things about San Diego is that even in the even in the traditional Catholic part of town, you know the, the barrio, there's mm-hmm. s- something where it's probably not safe to be after night. It's still ten million dollars for a four-bedroom house.
0: Oh my! Just
1: ridiculous what the the real estate goes for out there. Wow. So you Zill- know, I've never
2: never been out there, but I'm I don't I don't doubt it at all. That man, that almost sounds like San Francisco type prices.
1: Oh no, no, double it or triple it. It's gonna be San Francisco wow. prices. Wow, wow. But it, but when you're when you're touring around like foot touring around a really nice part of town, download the Zillow app and see what the the estimate how estimate um, cost of the houses around you are that's that can be entertaining um
2: look and it's it's just you could walk you could walk to tijuana from there i it always freaks me out how close it is
1: well not from coronado that's that's 25 miles yeah 20 miles maybe you think wow it's 20 it's 15 or 20 minutes on on the trolley i can't remember how many how long it is in in miles but
0: um Mm -hmm.
1: what was the saying 15 miles in 400 years is is the trip especially the the the, with all the drug violence right now you do not want to go south of the border right now
2: yeah oh no way you couldn't pay me you couldn't pay me so can i ask i don't want to don't want to get anybody in trouble but were you able to find a good mass while you were out
1: there absolutely yeah the, do you want to give a plug yeah they're uh the parish of saint anne actually
2: Hey! <laughs> did you know that already <laughs> No, I didn't actually.
1: <laughs> oh, I thought you were setting that up on for that reason. Yeah, the fraternity of St. Peter has a uh, location out there. Fraternity, it's a um, parish of St. Anne, and uh, they have, was it three or four Masses on Sunday? Um, all of them Latin Masses, although I was kind of caught a, a little askance by the fact that the, the locals there refer to them as English and Spanish Masses. That's because. Uh, most of the masses, they they have the readings and, and the sermons in English, so they refer to those as the English Mass, even though everything's in Latin. And then they have the Spanish Mass later in the day.
2: Wait, so, during during the liturgy, or or Father repeats the readings at the ambo before the homily.
1: No, the the Masses in Latin. They go through the Gospel, and then they Father takes off his maniple, puts it on the yes. Gospel, goes over to goes over to the um the the lectern. And he will read the gospel in English, epistle, or the other way around, epistle and then gospel in English, and then give a sermon at the English Mass. But at the Spanish Mass, the reading of the uh, the epistle and gospel is in Spanish.
2: And he preaches in Spanish. Yes. Nice. Oh, yeah, that's standard. That's completely standard. Okay, gotcha.
1: I I was going to say, I've heard that at at some events there, when uh, some fraternity bigwig comes through, they'll do the readings and the sermons in English and Spanish at the same Mass, and they just make a note in the bulletin it's going to be bilingual at that at that mm-hmm. point so it's going to take longer but i've mm-hmm. I've, I've seen that before when some uh, primarily when i was uh, going to mass at the SSPX where some of the European priests would come in and they speak only german or they speak only french so they would preach in that language and then somebody who's sufficiently UN qualified would would then do a, a an on the fly translation so yeah. i I've, I've seen it where the priest who's giving the sermon is not talking into the into the microphone so we can't really hear him the mm-hmm. one who is talking to the microphone is looking at him and, and, and can hear him and it's like doing an on-the-fly translation. Wow. And that's an interesting skill.
2: Yeah, that's you have to be darn darn good in a language to do that on the fly. Well, but, interesting. I've, I've also, never seen that myself.
1: I've also seen it where they ping-pong every 30 seconds, which is a little weird.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I think they're technically supposed to preach on, on Sundays and days of obligation, but... You know, <laughs> sometimes you you just think if it's if it's too logistically comp- complicated like that, why we can go without. We the faithful can go without a homily if if the situation requires. I think hearing around from people, um, I think the French are you know the French are they kind of do their own things sometimes. And one of the things that I think is pretty common in France is that they will. During the mass, during the liturgy itself, that they will r- read, say, proclaim the epistle and the gospel in French, and I think I think that's a violation. But apparently, it's pretty common in in France and and also in parts of Switzerland. So hmm, interesting, but mass is valid, <laughs> completely, totally valid.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of those things that you. The first time I heard it, and it was from an SSPX seminarian. he was talking about some of the training that he was getting at the time um, about the theology of the mass, is that the, the language is not essential to the mass. And of course, yeah. this seems a little odd to, some, to a group that may seem to make a really big deal about the mass being in Latin, but there's nothing, as, Latin is not essential to the mass. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it would be equally as valid if it were said in English or French or Greek or Klingon. It really doesn't matter. The... The sacrifice is what matters and the words uh the the intentions expressed by the words and the proper matter that all combined creates the sacrifice
2: yeah isn't it interesting that it's us over here on the latin mass side who who are capable of understanding and making that nuanced point um obviously the glory the glory of latin is the fact that you can go to mass with you know your your spanish-speaking neighbor neighbors and or you can be a tourist anywhere in the world and especially nowadays nowadays these days when we all have our baby televisions that we're carrying around with us you can open up something like divinium officium and you can and there's your translation right there but also remember folks you don't need that either, um, necessarily. Every once in a while, I'll just go to mass and I'll just, for whatever reason, make the make the decision that I'm just going to not read anything today. I'm just going to, you know, be there and be present and unite myself to the intentions of the priest offering the holy sacrifice and and you know pray during the whole notion that. I mean, active participation. What a, what a term that's been co-opted and misunderstood Um, there's there's multiple ways that you can actively participate in the holy sacrifice of the mass and sometimes that involves absolutely no you reading any text or or even even having a fluent understanding of anything anything that is said at a mass and
1: you are stealing my thunder because i was going to say that active participation does not preclude silent prayer or other way around yep. silent prayer can be active participation.
2: Oh of course, absolutely. In fact, it's it's the most ideal form in my opinion, the faithful in the nave during during especially a low mass should pray completely silently. You don't you don't need the lay people in the nave really saying let me think. No. You you don't need to actually vocalize anything at all, especially at a low mass.
1: I just think about the mysteries of what's going on there. I mean, you know, sometimes that lack of external engagement could even be to the point of of you know, something I I do a lot is I I don't even look up during the during the um consecration because the eyes of the body can't see what's really going on there. I mean, it's like yes, there mm-hmm. the priest is raising a what looks like a piece of bread and he's raising a chalice, but the spiritual realities you can't see and that's what's really significant there. Don't look up. Realize it in your heart and unite your heart and your prayers to Jesus who just manifested himself in just in in a mysterious mysterious sense, gave his life again for you. Indeed. Your eyes don't see that.
2: Yeah. And that's a good point because, you know, a lot of most places I would hope the server's going to have a bell. So, and that's the purpose of that so that, you know, if you are looking down, you have this this audio signal that this this thing has just happened. But what I think the better point to be made is let's say that you're in you know, a, a good sized church, you're in the back, but kind of in the middle of the bank of pews or whatever, and you simply cannot see, you cannot see what's going on up on the high altar, um, that's okay. That you you don't have to, I think that, you know, TVs and computers and screens and baby televisions that we carry around and all of this has made us so dependent in a sense on on the visual and the truth of the matter is is that you you absolutely do not need to see anything that's going on that's why heck in the in the east the holy sacrifice the divine liturgy happens largely behind the iconostasis and there there are there used to be rude screens in the West. There were rude screens and you couldn't, the faithful could not see anything that was going on on the high altar, but you had the music, you had the musical cues. If it was a sung mass, obviously you had bells ringing. So you knew when things were going on, there are other various cues, but the whole notion, the kind of self-absorbed notion that I have to see here, absolutely everything that's going on no you really 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 don't you really don't
1: talking about yet to see what's going on we were talking about this before we started recording um the idea that you know faith does not come by seeing you know ask saint thomas the the apostle about that one faith comes by hearing Mm. it's it's either the hearing uh the the movement of the holy spirit in your soul or the 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 signals where where there's the choir or the bells during mass faith can be amplified through hearing too, but that's the whole point of the preaching. We're not looking at the priest. In fact, it can be distracting at times, depending on the priest to look at him. It's better to just not look at him and just listen to what he's saying. Faith, Mm -hmm. faith comes through hearing and there's, there's, um, um, something I'm working on when I have time is the, is the thesis of the medium is more power or the the medium is the, the way to deliver the message. And, um, well I'll, I'll talk about that more at some point because i haven't fully developed this but just the idea that um it, it's I've, I've mentioned before the book Enter, Enter, or amusing ourselves to death and that mm-hmm. was by i want to say neil postman talking about the the uh social destruction that was going to come about as a result of the television not because he was waving around saying this thing doesn't seem good to me this guy was a very um a very astute philosopher, and just from a pure epistemological sense, the medium itself does not lend toward uh, intellectualism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll, I'll, I need to work on that more before I really get into it. But it just you—you you mentioned about you know the difference between seeing and hearing. I've never had the problem about being in the in the middle of the, p- the church or in the back and not being able to see. But that's just me.
2: That's because you're quite tall too. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it's it, I was just thinking about what what television has done to and this is the obvious one that everybody knows about what it's done to attention spans, and how it got to the point I mean, I stopped watching television quite a long time ago, like 10 years now. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been over 10 years now, because I remember it was February of 2009, is when I called them the at that point, I had um, satellite something, whatever that was called. And I called them and I just said, turn it off, turn it off, no more. But I I had even before that pretty much stopped watching Fox News. And the reason I had stopped watching Fox News is because it got to the point where the attention span of everything was, I I, I don't think I'm exaggerating much here when I say something like seven seconds or something. You know, you would have someone like O'Reilly would have a guest on and it was one question, um, one or two sentence answer, and then they're interrupting them, and they're moving on to the next thing. And I ran into that a little bit um, when I when I was doing radio interviews, like traditional talk radio, FM radio, let you would listen to in your car back in the old school days, um, with advertisements. And I did two or three of those in the wake of the in the wake of the Quran burning, and I just stopped because. You, they would ask you a question, and literally, you get one sentence out of your mouth, and the host is shouting you down, now it's time for this commercial break, ba da 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 this is a complete waste of time, and I think this whole phenomenon of podcasting and why people do like these podcasts is because you, I, anyone, can sit and just talk and develop ideas without any... Constraints. I mean, obviously, you need to keep things moving, and you shouldn't beat horses to death. But on the other side of the spectrum, with the the curtailed the the synthetically curtailed ability to focus and have any sort of um, attention span at all, I think podcasting is a reaction. Didn't you just send me a link to a podcast that was like? what four and a half hours long or something like that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. That was, uh, Alex Jones on the Joe Rogan show. He, he was back. Oh yeah. And I, I mentioned the, um, the, the reference to, um, TV versus audio i was i was making a reference to the um william f buckley and gore vidal debates back in 1968 yes and there was a the epilogue debate after the uh, i want to say it was after the democratic convention i got to pull. i got to find this on youtube it's probably out there somewhere but now uh, william f buckley made the point and this is in 1968 that television is ill-suited for making uh cogent arguments or having yep. a proper debate because the viewer draws an opinion about somebody based on their appearance and then makes their judgment about the value of what they're saying from that as opposed to the content of what they're saying mm-hmm. and I, I was really thinking about that line with regard to podcasting you can't see the person which is probably a good thing in eight times out of ten but mm-hmm. but uh, all you can listen all you can do is listen to what they're saying or if it's really distracting how they talk that might turn you off and you don't listen to them for that reason but that, that tends to be a minority of cases for me, but you, you focus on what people are saying. And if in the case of father Rippiger, you listen to it seven times to figure out what it was he said, but, yeah. but you, you, the, the medium is a way of getting the message across in a way that it could never, ever be done in video because you're not listening in video you're watching. And so the whole idea of, of, um, you know, sermons, I think, for example, faith comes by hearing podcasting would be perfect for sermons youtube not so much because you're looking at all the all you're looking at the priest you're looking at the way he, he moves his hands you're looking at the decoration of the sacristy in my case you're wondering what model of microphone is that and why didn't they use this other one you're thinking about a 100 other different things where if it, it was just the audio you wouldn't be distracted by any of this. You'd be thinking about the syllogisms and the and the points that they're putting together, and the and the and um, the message that's being said, as well, opposed to is, all the other stuff.
2: There is an absolutely perfect example of this, and that is the nineteen sixty Kennedy Nixon debate, which was, I think, it was the first one that was televised, on i'm not sure don't quote me on that but anyway the 1960 kennedy nixon debate everyone who listened to it on the radio swore up and down that nixon absolutely trounced kennedy and the people who watched it on television and you (laughs) pull it up and i don't know maybe i'll try to find some some youtube clips of this pull it up and watch it kennedy um kennedy has a tan and you know in, in retrospect, it was revealed that the reason Kennedy had a tan is because he had a terrible thyroid condition or something. And he was on some medication that caused you to turn to turn kind of orange, apparently. But he looked like he had a tan that he'd been frolicking out on the beach, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Nixon. Oh, and Kennedy. What Ken, Kennedy, Kennedy wore oh, a dark Ken suit. wore makeup yeah oh, he, he wore, he wore, dark makeup. Suit, yep. he wore yep. a
1: dark suit because uh people advised him that will look better on black and white television Nixon yep. wore a gray suit which had almost no contrast with his face he didn't wear makeup he was visibly sweating because of the the uh, studio lights which are about 150 degrees and had a five
2: o'clock shadow had, and had a five
1: o'clock shadow and, and the makeup yep. would have soaked up the sweat yeah I mean Nixon was not savvy on the image
2: And then Nixon's just his physical comportment of, you know, doing things like touching his face with his hands and and things like that. He came, Nixon came off horribly on television, but the content of what what Nixon said, if you were completely divorced from the image, the people who listen on radio said, oh, Nixon trounced, trounced him, absolutely trounced him. In terms of content and I think that is probably one of the best examples of this that you could make I'll try to I'll try to find a, a YouTube there, There's probably an entire documentary that's been made about that debate and about these dynamics. It's fascinating
1: I'm um, talking about debates. This came up on another random Joe Rogan podcast but it was with uh, dr. Phil talking about the 1960 debates um, Kennedy and Nixon prior to that, that that was the first televised debates, but that's the that was the last time a bald man was ever up for presidency after Eisenhower. That was it. Eisenhower didn't do the debates on TV. And today is it, is it reasonable to think that somebody who is bald will run for president or somebody who's fat, somebody who's not telegenic. Uh,
2: There's not going to be another William Howard Taft anytime soon. Yeah, it's, that's absolutely true. And look at, look at people who have political success, who are completely vacuous and, you know, most people can tell instantly that they're criminal. In fact, John Edwards, you know, these these pretty boys like that, and they're told, they're groomed, they're told, hey, you're a good looking guy, blah blah blah, you're going to charismatic. You, they're you're charismatic. You're going to wrap up x percent of the female vote just just by just by virtue of the way you look, just by virtue of the way you look, you're going to get X percent of the female vote. So that's a gift. Da, 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 da. How pathetic, how pathetic.
0: And well, in you California,
1: know, the only way, you know, Gavin Newsom, he's exactly that kind of person. He has no moral fiber whatsoever, but he comes across great on TV. That's the only way a white man's going to get elected governor in California. And they're talking about Beto O'Rourke who, did not even win his his um Senate competition against Ted Cruz. They're talking about him as being third right now among the Democratic people for uh for president.
2: Yep. Absolutely. Justin Trudeau, you can make that argument for him. The French the French guy Macron who, you know, married his grandmother and whatever married no, married his school teacher who's old enough to be his grandmother, but he's young, good looking guy and there's a, I think it's in the book of Isaiah. There's something that says, you know, they will talking about when people are cursed and throwing their silver into the streets and it's, they will be ruled by women and children. And I think that's exactly where we are.
1: Let's see Alexandria occasional cortex. I mean, yeah, yeah. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Exactly.
2: AOC. Get, get ready to see that with you know hail to the chief playing in the background at, at this point I would write nothing like that off nothing
1: I don't know she's stepping on a lot of toes in her own party though
2: <laughs> <She's> isn't. <indeed. laughs> I saw I did see a story that you know the if, if I can even use the term, the, rest- the responsible adults in the in the Democrat Party, I know that's a that's a contradiction of terms, but you know what I mean. That they're already figuring out. They're just saying we we have to primary her and we have to get her out because it's on a near daily basis. Her and um, <laughs> oh, I'm I'm just I'm getting such Schadenfreude watching um, this muzloid this hijabed
1: oh, muzloid woman. Omar
2: who just can't can't seem to get through a day without declaring that the Jews must be run, run into the sea and <laughs> oh it's such fun to watch this who are you rooting for i'm rooting for casualties in this in this case you know but it's um god forgive me but it's kind of fun to watch that train wreck unfold on a, a near daily basis as well
1: well from a to the extent that there could be any hope for the conservative movement, the biggest hope was the 2018 election and the Democratic Socialists who got elected. Let's just stand back and let them say all they want. That is the biggest endorsement for the conservative cause right now. Just let them talk about their Green New Deal and and, and uh, all the calamity Not- that will come, come about from that.
2: Okay, whatever, Alexandria. She was talking about some sort of a green deal, and the cost of the plan was, I think, ninety-five trillion dollars or something like that. And you absolutely, sweetie, you just keep talking about that. You just keep talking about. Yeah, it's a gift that keeps on giving. But I don't know. There's that that tactic presupposes a uh functionally intelligent electorate and when you look at the set that's uh, under under 40 under 45 I don't know where you want to draw the line it it gets scary in a hurry I saw a a poll just a few days ago um, just asking general impressions and favorability about socialism and I think uh, amongst 18 18 to 25 year olds it was in the 60s it was in the 60 percent favorability and then the follow-up question was you know just asking some sort of um, very broad question of what socialism is and none of them none of them have any idea whatsoever none of them
1: they all made up their own definitions too AOC yeah. did that it's like yeah if socialism is this that and this other thing well then yeah I'm a socialist yeah but you just describe something entirely different
2: yeah yeah the illiteracy putting it mildly but we will be we'll be ruled by women and children so there you go
1: i almost said it it goes to show that uh, people these days do have imagination but then i corrected myself before i said it it's like no aoc isn't coming up with anything uh, any of this on her own she's reading it from communist textbooks and from her handlers so this isn't actually functional imagination and you can tell that when she's interviewed and somebody asks her a question that requires her to actually think on her feet, she cannot do it.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: I'm I'm absolutely shocked. Yeah. The ability the bill the ability to speak extemporaneously. And again, another fabulous example of this is that time that Bill Clinton took over the press conference f- from Obama for Obama. Um it was pretty early on. They, you know, Clinton's visiting White House for something, press conference, Obama takes two questions, stutters, stutters through non-answer answers, then says, oh, I have to go to this birthday party for, I don't know, some children's birthday party event that Michelle is putting on. Um, I'm just going to I'm just going to hand this over to President Clinton, who is standing on the side and Clinton, I don't even know if Clinton was expecting this or not. Clinton takes the days, gets behind the podium, and the press start asking him like substantive questions about, you know, budget, this, that, and the other, um, international ideas, concepts, relations. And Clinton just stands there and holds forth. And it was it was stunning and you could tell that even the press corps sycophants you know on the Soros payroll completely in the tank obviously for Obama but you could tell that they were just thinking what a relief it is what a relief it is that we're asking questions and we're getting actual answers now you know what Clinton says is obviously evil and wrong but the fact that he can at least formulate ideas and speak extemporaneously and make points and give the press something to work with and something like that is going Going on, <laughs> it, almost exactly the same thing. If you watch, they just had the um, the sex perv summit in Rome about you know making sure that all of the Sodomite priests know that you you have to be really really careful if you're going to diddle a boy who's under the age of consent which is basically what that was all about and you watch these press conferences and you look at the vacuity of the you know the people up on the dais and the press just sitting there trying to get these people to say absolutely anything of substance and they can't they can't because they don't have the brains god gave a goldfish they can't even fake it most of them so yeah that's, that's the world we live in.
1: Before we wrap it up, let's talk about Lent real quick, because this will be coming out either on uh, Fat Tuesday or on Ash Wednesday or the day after. Um, we should probably say something real quick.
2: We probably should. Um, you know, obviously fasting, um, that goes without saying, but then adding something as well. Spiritual reading, adoration, anything like that. I'm personally, right now, the the parish that I am closest to is doing something absolutely wonderful, absolutely delightful. And they're doing a, um, a 40 hours exposition and adoration running up into, into Ash Wednesday. So that's, that's just wonderful. And um, I don't know, do you have any thoughts, any, any suggestions of what people could either fast from or, and, or add?
1: Well, obviously food is the first thing that comes to mind, but we well, talked, we, we talked about, um, you know, the, the the media appetite earlier something i'm working on doing is is fasting from stuff on my phone and whether it's um Mm. i I placed an order for a nokia e71x (laughs) this is a this is a circa 2008 phone so it, it, it has access to 3g uh internet so you could actually use it for that but the whole idea is to start disconnecting from app phones and mm-hmm. uh, something I've started doing is, is uh, throughout the day, and I'll, I'll ping my wife that I'm going to start doing this, but she can also call me at work if she really needs to get a hold of me. It's like, I'll just put my phone in either data off mode or I'll just put it in airplane mode. You know, your phone, your battery will last a long time if you put it in airplane oh, mode.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, it lasts like a week if you put it in airplane mode.
1: Oh, you know, the other yeah. magic is it doesn't buzz and chirp and give you alerts.
2: Mm-hmm. And so when you actually
1: mm-hmm. need to get work done, it's it's awesome. It's magic. I, I, I work on the programming that I'm working on, put my phone in airplane mode. It's awesome. I can actually just concentrate on what I'm doing instead of wondering, why is my phone buzzing? So it, it, it's magic, and I highly recommend it. I also recommend maybe just getting rid of the darn thing altogether and going to a flip phone. They still do exist. I'm, I'm yep. looking into that although they're disappearing i'm thinking that it would be worthwhile perhaps to design a flip phone which does have some smartphone capabilities but you have to explicitly turn them on um yeah. each time but no. and they
2: should be and they should be what word could I use? Unpleasant to use. I'm reminded of the flip phones and text messaging. I never, ever sent a text message until not too terribly long ago because I remember having those phones and in order to, a flip phone, and in order to compose a text message, you had to do the thing with the, with the numerical keypad where, you know, the letter F was, you pressed I don't know. What was it? A, B, C, D, E, F. You you press the numeral three, three times to get to F.
1: Well, that was the original the, version of doing it. And then they got the, what they call the T9 predictive entry. So to to write the word home, for example, you'd write, you know, 6663. And it would say that combination is, is, you know, one of three different words. Mm-hmm, I got mm-hmm. so good at that. I could write out text messages while driving without looking at my phone.
2: Oh my goodness
1: so I mean oh, I was man. actually paying attention to the to the road and then tapping you know writing out full messages and sending them and then the only time I'd look back down is when a reply comes in
0: mm mm-hmm. mhm
2: Wow, that's pretty hardcore. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure
1: if that was a good skill or not. Just <laughs> I just.
2: I oh Let me just say the Barnhart podcast does not, in any way, shape, manner, or form, endorse such uh, behaviors while driving. But well, no, whoa. you can't.
1: You can't do that with smartphones now because they don't have the tactile phones with the raised right. the raised indicator on the on the uh, the five keys, so you can figure out where you are. Now, on the other hand, you know these things have this awesome capability. You might even call it an app or a feature. You can dial a sequence of numbers and hit a a red or a green button and actually talk to somebody. It's amazing.
2: Amazing. Absolutely incredible. And who was I? Oh, I was having a conversation with somebody not too long ago and we were talking about um, when I was in, it was my third grade teacher. I will never forget my third grade teacher one day. And I don't know why we got off on this, but she there was just in the side during the day in class. And she said, I want you guys to remember that if the phone rings, you don't have to answer it. And if the doorbell rings, you don't have to answer it. And I, rem- it's funny the things that you remember in life, but I remember that to this day. Do you remember, you know, all of you out there who are our age or in your 40s or whatever, do you remember being a kid and when the telephone rang, you... You always you got up, you ran, and you answered the phone. And nowadays, I'm I'm glad to say that I have broken myself completely of that. Um, yeah, if if the phone rings, l- look at it. Don't look at it, or you know just. You, you can resolve that you're not going to answer the phone even without looking to see what the caller ID is or if you know who the caller is or anything. You you never, ever, ever have to answer the phone and you never, ever, ever have to answer the door. Um, so <laughs> just remember that. It's, it's sometimes I people's phones will ring in church or something like that. And every time I see someone actually answer the thing, I'm just – I'm mystified by that. It, what a comment that is. I mean, I'm talking about like during mass, you know, um, h- how much of a slave are you to something? How much of a health, unhealthy connection and addiction do you have to something if you're sitting there in the middle of mass, your phone rings. First of all, you should have had it silenced, or even if you even if you had it on vibrate, and you answer it. I mean, Man, I've what, what a commentary! That,
1: I've only seen that three times in Latin masses, but in all three cases, they were doctors.
2: Yeah, but yeah, I can I can see that, but no, I've seen people who very very clearly weren't well, doctors were, do that.
1: They were immediately walking out, also, and it wasn't just yes. to be polite. It's like, okay, this is a call they were expecting. Somebody's, I don't know what the deal is. They're they're doctors, and they do what they do.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But the, I've but, seen people. Oh, Those go ahead.
2: I've seen people answer the phone and then sit there and have a conversation and say, no, I'm at mass. Can I call you back? It's like, oh my gosh, just no. What are you doing? You don't answer it. You don't say one word on the telephone in in church ever.
1: That that, That deserves the Deacon Jones treatment.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's if you're not familiar with 1970s LA Rams, Deacon Jones was a guy who was famous for head slapping people. as as a means for getting through the offensive line to sack a quarterback. So yeah, head slaps for people who talk in church. Um, Mm -hmm. Back to putting your phone in airplane mode, call it a a 55-minute challenge. From the top of the hour till 55 after, I guarantee whatever happens, even if it really is an emergency, that's what voicemails are for. That's what emails and text messages are for. Your life will be so much better. And once you realize that 55 minutes at a time is not that hard, go to two hours, go to four hours and eventually you'll get to the point where you realize these little things that are the little spy in your pocket. It's really a tool for you to contact other people, not the other way around. Try mm-hmm. to get to like four or five, eight hours at a time where you have this in airplane mode. It works great.
2: Yep. All right, well, we should wrap it up. I, I literally have somewhere that I have to be, so... <laughs> <laughs>
1: All right, the Barnhart Podcast is something. I'm pulling up my notes because I wasn't expecting it.
2: It's something, all right. Something. You can say that again, my friend. <laughs> okay,
1: the email address for the Barnhart Podcast, where you can send feedback, comments, suggestions, and other ideas for what to from what to fast during Lent is Ooh, podcast at barnhart.biz. Masses for Ann's benefactors every single day, and once a week there is a mass for everybody who died the previous week um please pray for these priests they are obviously high on satan's hit list because as we mentioned in that email before there are people who would never get a mass said for them otherwise and you can't imagine that satan's pleased at that so pray pray for these priests they need the help Uh, the barnhart podcast is a production of super nerd media if you found something of value in this podcast or in previous episodes you can visit supernerdmedia.com for more details which is what Arthur, Jean, Camille, Brian, and Donald did. And then the Double Secret Engineer sent me pages three and four and a donation as well via the P.O. box. Uh, there is a new P.O. Actually, the P.O. box is no, well, it's still there, but I've, I've changed the address on that. And um, there's a new mail drop. By the way, if you're meaning to donate to Anne, go to her website and click the big orange button. Or if you're on a phone, scroll all the way to the bottom. It's worth it. Find the orange button. Donations for Super Nerd, do not go to Anne. Donations to Anne, do not go to Super Nerd. That There's a complete segregation of financial stuff there so uh, absolutely if, if you were meaning to donate to Anne and you sent sent something to me drop me a note i'll refund it and um send it to her it's no problem um i will let you describe the matthew 1720 initiative
2: The Matthew 1720 initiative is where we full fast twice a week, and the intention is that Bergoglio be publicly recognized and removed as anti-Pope and the whole thing be nullified, that Ratzinger be publicly—Pope Benedict Ratzinger— be publicly recognized as having been the one and only living Pope since April 2005, whether he likes it or not, that anti-Pope Bergoglio repent, revert to Catholicism— die in a state of grace and someday achieve the beatific vision and that likewise Pope Benedict Ratzinger repent of what he has done die in a state of grace and someday achieve the beatific vision nothing less will do total resolution of the whole thing faith our lady undoer of knots pray for
1: us you got to be in the ship of of Peter if you want to make it to the next world and we spent a lot of time talking about boats this, this podcast but um be in the ship. Don't go overboard.
2: And go to mass, no matter what. Absolutely. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. <laughs> go to mass. It's Calvary. He wants you there. Go.
1: And until next time, I am Super Nerd, or possibly Roman McLean, but we'll figure. We'll talk about that one next time.
2: Ooh, intriguing, and I'm Thanks, guys. God bless.